Well, we started Omnidian, um, myself and three co-founders, about uh, five or six years ago. And we came from disparate backgrounds. Uh, some of us came out of financial services. Uh, there were others that were out of renewable energy and had uh, really deep kind of bench in that industry and, it, and um, a, a lot of passion for it. And what we saw coming out of the renewable sector was that people were focused on selling upfront uh, to the customer, but they weren't focused on the experience the customer had after they completed the purchase decision. And so we realized because uh, looking at solar particularly, we realized that these assets have a lifespan of 20, 25, 30 years and there was an incredible gap in the market, and that was focusing on the post-purchase experience, and that's what caused us to uh, found uh, Omnidian. Uh, we started with, I think there were four or five of us. Today, we have over 200 people in over 30 states, and we're continuing to grow. We're now managing over 175,000 solar assets nationwide. We're managing them for uh, corporations, we're managing them for homeowners, we're managing them for installers, those people that um, uh, you see who are selling uh, residential uh, solar systems. So we're able to focus on the uh, entire uh, sector of the industry and um, that's how we started and that's what we're doing today. That's super interesting. What is... Uh of the team, because it was more than a couple of you, right? So what was your role as you kind of, what did you bring to the table um, with your other co-founders? <laughs> well, um, I had known the co-founders for a long time. Uh, I've been in business for a long time. I've done a lot of startups. My career started in traditional retail with Target. And I was with Target uh, almost 15 years. And uh, became director of uh, marketing for one of their subdivisions and then was recruited out of retail to become chief marketing officer and head up marketing and communications for a bank. Um, at the time, it was a small regional bank, Washington Mutual. It grew from 30 million in assets to over 300 billion and eventually became the largest savings loan in the nation. I left in 2005 before the uh, financial crash. It was eventually purchased by JP Morgan Chase and I eventually went into the renewable energy sector. I was a global uh, uh, chief marketing officer for SunPower, big manufacturer of uh, uh, solar panels. And that's where I met the, uh, the co-founder. So when I came to the table, I was really coming to the table with a couple things in mind. First of all, coming as a uh, communications uh, professional, uh, marketing professional, but also in helping to found and determine what the guiding principles would be for our business. We knew what we were gonna do. What we really had to do was talk about how we were gonna do it and why we were gonna do it. And because we realized if we could bring clarity to those things, we would be able to impart that and pass it on to every single person who came on board with us. And we've done that over the years uh, to this very uh, day. All very, very careful to tell our founding story, not only what we do, people who are applying for positions with us get that, but how we do it and why we do it. Yeah. 
I know that's one thing that you put a lot of thought into is sort of what are those founding values and how does this pertain to where we're going? What does this mean to people inside the company? And ultimately, what will it mean to people outside the company? How have, how did you, how have you typically approached that in your career and how do you approach that now with Omnidian? Well, a couple of times, uh, both in uh, banking, uh, in traditional retail, now in uh, uh, clean uh, energy. One of the things that that we look at are sort of walk the executive team through a set of principles for developing three things. First, what's the mission of the company? Secondly, what's the vision for the company? What happens if you fulfill your mission? How, how are you gonna leave the world different? And third, the values. And those three things, Justin, really have enabled us to tell a story to every member who comes on our team about what we do and why we do it and how we do it. And so we spend a lot of time working on the mission and the vision and the values and working on them in a way that we didn't want to go into a room, uh, take the uh, original thinking of the founders, uh, commit it to paper, have it printed and have it hanging on a wall somewhere. We wanted these things to be living principles, almost our operating system. And so uh, I think I'd mentioned to you before, we do this thing for every new employee that comes into the company without fail called brand ambassador training. And the brand ambassador training is to really help people understand what a brand is and what it isn't. Um, we can talk a little more about that, but mostly we tell that story through our mission, why are we here, our vision, how do we operate and what are our values? How do, how do we treat and behave with one another? Yeah, I think you and I share the, uh, that point of view, which is whatever the brand is internally is what it's going to be externally, right? Like you have to get it right on the inside. Um, yeah, 100%. What, have you, what have you seen is the impact? What's the payoff of that in the early days? I mean, there's this stuff you set the foundation. I mean, you reap the benefits of this for years to come, but what are you seeing as some of the maybe the early wins from that type of uh, adoption internally? I think the early win is to really inspire people, right? Like when, when, you, when you think about it, people come to work for you, but they're really going to perform and outperform and they're going to stay with you and they're going to innovate and they're going to be more and more productive if they leave work every day and they're inspired by what they do. So for example, the, the, uh, uh, you know, what we do is uh, reflected in our vision. We protect and accelerate investments in clean energy. And a lot of people come to the table because they believe deeply in that and they want to contribute to that and they want to be uh, a part of it. And then we step back to say, well, what's the vision of the company, right? And the vision of the company is to be a partner to our communities in helping to lead us toward a more sustainable future. And then we had to stop and go, well, what do we mean by our communities? And we realized that we had four really important segments. First of all, our capital partners, the people who were writing the check and helping to fund us. Our coworkers, the people that we were bringing on board to help us uh, in the mission. Our communities, we were deeply embedded in a lot of communities across the nation and we wanted to really leverage that. Um, and so what we were really careful to do was to step back and say, who is it we want to influence and who do we want to bring along with us? And then the definition of the values was probably the most difficult thing of all, because our values are kind of our operating system. It's like, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. 
for us and for a lot of other companies. Uh, one of our uh, first uh, values is the, the whole idea of creating an amazing customer experience. And I said, when we landed there, well, that makes perfect sense, but you tell me a single company out there in the face of the planet who's not going to say they're trying to do the same thing. So the more important part of our values was part two. It was like, we want to create an amazing customer experience, but how do we do it? And how do we embed that into the words that we write, the things that we share with people when they're coming on board with us? And we did that. We defined exactly how we would create an amazing customer experience. And uh, it's important because now when people come on board, we have a way to orient and train them. They have a common way to look at the challenges that we're facing, and they have tools to help them to understand how to solve those challenges by looking at our values. People refer to our values quite often because, as I said, they're kind of an operating system for us, right? Uh, amazing customer experience, great. How do you do that? Well, we said we do that through uh, passionate teams, uh, innovative technology, right? And when we started to define that uh, customer experience, we can look at whether our technology is innovative and we can measure against that, right? But then when you step back from that and you go, well, what does it mean to have a passionate team? We actually dissected it. We, there's a, a great book, uh, Keith Ayers wrote it uh, called The Passion Pyramid. He, he has in it that thing called The Passion Pyramid about the ways you engage with your employees and your teams to make sure they continue to be passionate, right? And so they have to feel respected. They have to feel like they're learning and they're growing, that they're doing meaningful work. They have to feel like they're an insider, like they're not getting part of the information, they're getting all of the information. So those things in combination led us to have a united, aligned team working toward the same vision and trying to get there in the same way. And I think that's the early impact it had and the impact we've seen uh, all the way uh, to today. You just can't underestimate the importance of defining these things and then having training programs and following up on them and making sure people not only understand them and know how you arrived at where you did, but they feel like uh, it's a reflection of them and their values. Yeah. We meet teams all the time who you can tell they had this pretty well buttoned up at the very beginning. They knew, they definitely knew mission and vision. They had some values. How well they documented was probably, you know, wide spectrum. Yeah. And then there's others where it was sort of verbal, but never really committed to anything. It wasn't really trained on. It wasn't really part of the employer experience or the customer experience. And so later on down the road, they try to document it themselves or they brought in a, an expert or hired an agency for that type of thing. So we see that we get to see the full spectrum on that. If you were to meet with, a, let's say, a founding team and they were to pick your brain about this, are there any kind of watch outs that you would give somebody who's about to, you know, found a company or start this initiative? Like what kind of watch outs would you give them or what would you say is, hey, at a bare minimum, let's be really clear about these types of things. Uh, I think the one that was most difficult for us was the whole idea of like building the mission, right? Because it's really quite easy, particularly if you founded a company, you know why you founded the company and what you plan on doing, right? Um, and so it's the what you're doing part of the vision or the mission that isn't particularly difficult to, to come to agreement and get it on paper. It's the how you do it part that's the most difficult. And so what we did is we looked at companies around the globe. We looked at uh, 
uh, Warby Parker, uh, eyeglasses. We looked at uh, Nike. We looked at Disney, Southwest Airlines, people who were in other industries. And we looked at their uh, uh, statement of mission. And we tried to pull those statements of mission that would be a zeitgeist for us. You'd look at it and you'd go, wow, that gives me incredible clarity, not only in what we're doing here as a company, but how we plan on getting there. And so we use those as a model, but there are two components to the mission statement, what you do and how you do it. And making sure the entire executive and leadership team is in agreement on how you're going to get there. What are the key things you're going to drive to make sure you're able to achieve your mission? Those are among the most difficult things uh, uh, to define. Normally, when you start to work with an exec team, there'll be a long list. And you can't train and educate people or get people motivated behind a very long list of anything. And so, um, you know, we uh, landed on three things. Uh, as I said, innovative technology, passionate teams, and amazing customer experience. Those are the three things we wanted to make sure we were metricing and measuring and sharing with the entire organization every step of the way. And when you saw one of those metrics begin to go sideways, like perhaps on the customer experience, it wasn't going the way you wanted it to go, right? Um, or your technology wasn't getting turned out quickly enough, or you, we do feedback loops every couple of weeks with our teams. Are they engaged and uh, are they feeling passionate about their work? Uh, what that allowed us to do is to step back from it. And if one of those was going sideways, we'd look at our values and we'd go, what, what guideline is there in our values that will help people understand how to do their job better? Because you can't start giving those answers as one-offs. So we put metrics around the vision, we uh, the mission. We described not only what we were doing, but how we were going to do it. We set metrics up so that we could measure it. And then the values and the way the values were written helped uh, drive us and, and, and get us there. An example is uh, an amazing customer experience. So we didn't like the way the metrics were moving or they were moving in a negative direction. Our value says we create an amazing customer experience by removing roadblocks and frictions our clients have in their journey with us. That meant everyone in the company could participate in the improvement of that metric. Everyone in the company could report out what they've observed and seen and where they've seen friction or they've seen roadblocks. And it allowed us to, as a team, a very large team, continue to just look at the issues, look at the metrics, making sure we were living that mission, we were living those values, and go in and uh, identify corrective action. And, and if there wasn't a, a good enough uh, prescriptive way within our values to solve the problem, we knew our values were off and we needed to fix it. The, uh, the value conversation also makes me think of another topic that I know you and I have talked about in the past, which is just defining customer value, right? So not only the values and principles that we live by, but what is it that we are providing to the customer? What is, how do we define value? And, and oftentimes when you use the word value in that way, it's just a formula, right? It's, it's numbers, yeah. it's math, it's, yeah. it's price and cost and that type of thing. But there's other factors, right? And I think those are often overlooked. Would you agree with that? I mean, how do you look at that when you're talking about delivering value to customers? Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because um, here's the way I think about, it. you know, when you think about value, the traditional view of value is relative to price and quality, right? And a lot of people look at value in that very limited kind of way. And I have often said, I think the problem with that is that it does two things. If you look only at price and quality, 
it really takes the customer and the customer experience out of the equation. Because you pay for something not only with money, you also pay for something with time and with emotion. And if you had a good experience, think about anything, any company you've engaged with, any product or service that you've purchased. If you walked away feeling good emotionally, if you walked away and you didn't feel like your time was wasted, you would pay a price premium for that experience and for that product. And so I think when you can really look at innovating around what you provide, the service, the product, and look at the time and emotion into the equation, I think that's an important and very valuable force multiplier in the market. And it's the reason, for example, when we wrote our first value to be an amazing customer experience, we defined further those things that would affect time and emotion. Because what we said is we provide a great customer experience and we told people how by removing roadblocks and friction in their journey with us. It lets everyone see it, it lets everyone uh, participate in it. And I think it causes people to have just innately a different uh, perception of what value is. They know that value has to do with time and emotion and uh, make goods even. <laughs> I, I often say, you know, uh, when you think about it, Amazon's not selling, you know, 2 billion things. Uh, what they're selling is the experience of searching and finding what you want, uh, the representation that is made of the, what you can expect to get, uh, the quality and speed with which it was delivered, and the best thing of all, make goods. Something arrives, it's not what you want, it's not how you want. How easy is it? Is there a roadblock? Is there friction there? How easy is it to return it? I walk it to the local Whole Foods and throw it across the counter and they say, thank you, goodbye. It's pretty easy. So um, it, it's all those things, all time and emotion based. Yeah, completely agree. I think it's a good point because it is easy to take the business school definition of value and just end it there. And some people could argue, well, emotion and time, that's part of quality. Um, sure, but people overlook it to the point where it's just completely stripped away and, and overlooked, I think, which means there's an opportunity for people to pay more attention to it and to do better because... They pay attention to those things, right? Yeah, and think about it from the perspective of the industry that we're in right now, Justin, right? Because people go out and they invest a lot of money into a solar technology. If you're a homeowner, it could be 25, 30, 35, $40,000. It's a big investment. And you could be very happy with the quality of what you received. What happens for the next 20 years? The post-purchase experience with it who do you call if there's a problem? How do you know if you have a problem? I'm seeing my energy bill goes up and my energy production is going down, but I'm not really sure why. Do I need to call someone to come out here and crawl up on my roof to try to do that diagnostic? You don't have to. That's what we've created, technology that allows us to do that remotely for our uh, client base. But those are the kinds of things you have to look at, right? It's the, it's the, the uh, experience that you're having with the product or the service you've purchased. I've That's talked to people. Point. I've talked to people in the UK who have gone through this exercise at a law firm. Think about that. And I was like, well, what kind of stuff did you look at? And they were like, uh, was there anything for people to write with when they arrived at the conference room? Uh, did they know by sitting in the lobby how we were different than every other law firm in town? What's the quality of the writing utensil we gave them to write with? How does that speak about the quality of the work we're going to be producing? They looked at every single touch point. 
Disney does it. You know, you don't park in F1, you park in Goofy. So, you know, these companies that are really great brands have looked at every single touch point in the customer's journey, all the way through the point where you have to do a make good. You know, my favorite story about Disney is that the greatest amount of training is given to the people who sweep the park. And the reason for that is they realized by being in touch at the touch point that those were the people who were seen most often, who were most often asked for directions. You'd walk up to someone who's like sweeping up or cleaning up. The parks are immaculate, immaculate. And that's the person who's closest. They were a representative of Disney. So they started to train them where things are located and how to engage and in, in, in interact with customers. It's all those touch points, all the time, all the emotion, everything that leads to the decision how much someone will pay. Do you know how expensive a Disney ticket is today? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it'd be a good worked. experience. Yeah, it's quite expensive these days. It's such a good reminder because I think most people would say, "Yep, we agree," and and then if we're all being honest, we don't do near enough uh, on that front, right? We we know that there are quality uh, interactions with any company and their customers in the frontline uh, team. But do they get, like you said, do they get the maximum amount of training on that? Probably not. Probably not. If we're being honest, probably not. But it's a, it's a great reminder because whenever you do go through that exercise, good things happen and and then you wish you would have done it sooner. I think of this every, it changes my thinking, right? I go to a dentist. The dentist is located on the fifth floor of the building. The dentist has a person at reception. I count the number of touch points. Could I find the address? Who's uh, guarding the elevator and how difficult is it going to be for me to press five and get up to, to their office? When I walk in the door, how quickly are they greeting me? What are they saying? Are they helping to relieve anxiety? Whatever it is, right? If you just start to look at all those touch points in your own life and how those touch points can have a, a big influence on how you view that experience, it'll cause us to do the same thing in our businesses. Yeah. The problem with it is you start to see where the standard is and then you have one that's low and then you know why it's low and you know why you're in a bad mood because you've, you've studied it and you realize all those things. But that, again, it's a good point because again, we're not logical creatures. It, it, it's all those little factors and inputs that cause us to be in the mood to purchase, not purchase, move forward, not move forward, be grumpy, be happy, all that type of thing. It's these little subtle cues. And if you can think about what that ideal experience would be, you can kind of set people up to a stage where hopefully you, they can make a decision that's good for them. Right. And, um, right now we're talking about solar and energy consumption and use like that. We need all the help we can get to help people make decisions that are positive for them and everybody else. There's a great article that was written years ago. I think it was in time magazine. Time Magazine was a little bit different then than it is today, maybe 10 years ago. But the article was called The Why of Buy. And it was about this thing called neuroeconomics. I always recommend people Google it, look at it. Um, I think there's a book by the same uh, title. But 95% of all purchasing decisions are subconscious, right? Homo economicus sits down. This is someone who doesn't exist. <laughs> driven entirely economically and logically and does a little tea 
and you know puts the pros and the cons of the purchase decision on one side or the other. You tell me anybody you've ever seen do that. They don't, right? The decision-making about purchase decisions are subconscious. They're at the neuroeconomic level. And uh, I, I've always been uh, in, influenced by that uh, thinking. It's like in uh, the, you know, in the renewable energy sector, for a long time, people were saying, you know, well, the purchase decisions being made because someone's going green. That wasn't the reason. It, that was what they said after they made the purchase. The purchase decision was economic, right? And it, would, it was influenced by many things, what their neighbors had to say, what they were reading, accessibility to the information, right? Misinformation that was in the market. And so um, all, all those things create the ecosystem of the purchase decision. Some we control and some we don't. But we, the, what's interesting about it is the more aware we are of those touch points, the more opportunity we have to control that uh, touch point, to influence yeah. it. Yeah, it's... These are things that uh, I, I will tell you as a marketer, I forget constantly. I forget that you can't just be logically the better choice. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Now it helps to be logically the better choice, but you cannot rely on that. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, when you're using that example, I was just thinking about, you know, friends who have bought Teslas. None of them did any kind of math at all. It was like, uh, so-and-so's got one, I want one, right? Yeah. Like that's pretty much it. And then they made it work. Yeah. Uh, now, was it logically a great decision? Maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, they never did the math uh, or wrote down pros and cons, like to your point. Uh, it was like, it was a peer pressure or some other reason, you know, that, that caused that. Well, in the example that you gave, I often think, you know, rental agencies are a big factor. People are out there renting those cars and whatever their experiences with it, they're translating that to their purchase decision. It's another touch point that may or may not even be thinking about. You know, for us, the post-purchase experience was around a lot of things. It was that you bought an expensive system. Let us test it for 30 days and verify the amount of energy that it's delivering. So that was a touch point and we talk about that. Let us monitor it. Uh, in the solar industry, there are a lot of false alerts uh, uh, can be uh, driven by uh, shading or soiling or even the weather, right? Things that would impact your production of energy, but it's something you don't need to be concerned about. So we could filter all that stuff out and monitor those systems remotely. We don't even need to send someone to the location. We had intelligent system diagnostics that would allow us to say to you, this much of your energy loss is shading. This much is because of a tree that grew too tall on that side of your house. This much is from the weather that we're experiencing right now. We could diagnose that uh, remotely. We could optimize the service if you needed support. We could schedule it. We could coordinate it. We can handle it for you and even provide a performance guarantee. If at the end of the year, that system didn't perform the amount uh, for to deliver the amount of energy we told you it would, we'd write you a check. We talked about all those things in our messaging, all those things. The message that snagged the most was the following headline, solar versus squirrel. Number one, number one response rate came from that, not from any of the features I just mentioned to you. Because what that headline said to the people who were doing the buying, they get it. 
The last time I had a problem with my solar system, it was because a squirrel chewed through a wire and brought my system down, right? And even the people who were selling the systems and installing the systems, they got it. They were professionals. And they were like, someone who sees from this angle exactly what can happen up there, I want to have a conversation with them. And then all the other message points I just gave you came home to roost. I mean, people, yeah, this is the pain relief we need. This is what we're looking for. Thank you. But it's those things, the ability you have to show empathy for your audience, the ability you have to speak the language your audience speaks, the ability to reflect you understand the emotion they're experiencing. Those are all uh, really important. That's cool. That's a good example. What kind of uh, feedback are you hearing for customers? Well, uh, our business is growing rapidly. Uh, there aren't that many uh, companies out there, particularly on the residential side, who are providing this kind of like post-purchase experience for homeowners and uh, the, this kind of protection plan for uh, people who are selling the systems. So we're getting really positive feedback right now, particularly because the industry is going through a big point of inflection. Not only all of the uh, infusion of capital into the market as a result of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, but prior to that, more and more states, more and more people, more and more businesses moving toward uh, clean technology. That has really started to take off. And as a result of it, our market and our potential market has opened up like nobody's business. And so, uh, I mean, think about it. It in includes municipalities, universities, schools, hospitals, uh, businesses, uh, uh, big retail companies, right? Uh, people who are building the systems, people who are selling the systems, right? And uh, the fact that we're focused on that post-purchase experience and making sure that that asset and that investment in that asset is going to operate optimally for the life of the asset is really important because guess where future buyers are turning to make their purchase decision? They're turning to people who already have the systems and asking what their experience is, not what they paid for it, not what it was like getting it installed on the roof, but what it's like day to day. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an insightful, uh, I mean, the, the original insight I think is really strong. From my uh, point of view, it's probably one of the few things that you would purchase where you know there is a long sort of payback period um, that you don't have to make. Like you don't have to do this, right? A lot of times when you're making investment and you're looking 20, 30 years out, it's for something that you almost have to have, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that is where you're going to talk to people because it is, it's a long-term investment and it's optional. And did someone, are you happy you did it or are you not? What's experience? It, it's, it's unique in that way, it seems. It, it is until the other thing is like, um, I remember I was speaking to the World Retail Congress in Dubai about value and creating it and how to do it. And there was lots of, you know, there was 1,400 retailers from around the globe in the room, and they all had like incredible insights. But one of the insights I gained from conversation with everyone there was this very concept that you're talking about. And sometimes you have to teach people how to use it. You have to teach people how to eat it, how to wear it, how to use it. And we often uh, over, overlook that educational component, right? So when you say in renewable energy, for example, that the purchase decision is entirely discretionary, it is, 
But <laughs> the cost of energy is accelerating like nobody's business. People's utility bills are getting higher and higher and higher. More company OPEX is getting sucked out because of energy costs, right? Those are able to be offset now. And what people really don't understand is how will that purchase decision, rather than being perfectly discretionary, help them economically, right? They want to know things like, well, what's the payback period? And how quickly will I start to see savings on my energy bill? And what kind of savings will I see? And what can I expect over time? And how long will it take me to pay off the investment as a result of that, right? Those are all educational things that are really important to go out and cultivate the market ahead of ourselves. Yeah, that's a great point. What are some of the um, well, when you look ahead at sort of next milestones and, and next places where you want to take things like what, what's on the horizon that are, that gets you excited or you're thinking, oh, that's, that's going to be a tough one to get to, but it's going to be worthwhile. Let's go for it. Like what's, what's ahead for you? I would say two things on very different levels. One is that the industry is about to cross the chasm and, uh, many states have, California, Hawaii, there are other states now, where initially what's happening is you're building the market. You're selling to the early adapters and you're selling to those people who are willing, almost anxious to take risk, to experiment with the technology and the, right? What's happening though, is that now we're crossing the chasm and we're starting to sell to the early mass market. And for us, particularly when we sell B2B into partners, where we're partnering with people who are selling up solar technology to companies or individuals, <clears throat> we're having to educate them that the buyer that's sitting across the table looks identical to the buyer that was sitting across the table four years ago. But mentally, they're very different. Because as you pass into that early mass market, the early mass market is going to be risk averse. And so you're going to have to talk with them a little differently than you talk to the early adapters and what got you here won't get you there. <laughs> You've used this approach. Approach isn't going to work because the psychology of your market is changing. So that's one I've got my eye on and is really, really fascinating and interesting to me. And we're working with our partners a lot uh, in that respect. The other is the growth and diversity of the market. The, the market, you know, a couple of years ago, we were selling to installers, people that you know of out there who uh, uh, sell and install these systems for homeowners or for businesses. And that was our uh, primary market. But now uh, our market's expanding dramatically into, you know, commercial real estate and uh, EPCs, those who be like, you know, procure and build for uh, uh, corporations and own the asset or sell it back to the uh, purchaser. Uh, corporations uh, are our target audience now, right? Because they're all moving into clean, renewable energy. We're getting a lot of ask now that we weren't uh, getting uh, even a year and a half ago from people who are doing corporate reporting, right? And so what's happening is when they're, you know, looking at um, uh, the uh, corporate reporting, they may have renewable technology out there on many different sites, but they haven't, like, they don't know how to aggravate the data and report it out and verify it. So it's, it's a super exciting time uh, to be where we are, both because the market as a whole is crossing the chasm, and also as a result of that, the, 
audiences and the diversity of the audiences is really <clears throat> incredible. And something that's new, I spent two and a half hours on the phone this morning with my team and we were just going through each audience. Who are they? Who are the companies? What job titles are we targeting? How are we gonna reach them? What's the best channel? What trade association should we be uh, partnering with? How do we get out in the market? How do we align the sales? Does the sales team agree these are the right job titles? Do we have the right value propositions? Are these value propositions appropriate for this market segment? Do they represent not only value, but value through time and emotion? All of that. Oh yeah, that's, that's, yeah. The, uh, that's the hard work. I'm curious. So I spend a lot of time thinking about the difference between early adopter and early mainstream. And yeah. I'm curious, maybe you have a beat on this. Do you think that, how many people know that you really have to pay attention to the value prop and language and messaging when speaking to two, those two different groups? Do you think that people, do you think that the majority understand that and they can appreciate that and know that the lead message may have to change between the two of them? Or do you think that, no, the majority don't realize that that is the case? What do you think? I don't know, you know, it probably depends on the audience. I just made a luggage purchase. I hadn't done so for bloody years. And I think I owned Toomey luggage before. Lasted me a long time. It's all good. All of a sudden, I discovered this luggage brand called Carl Frederick. Seemed pretty durable, pretty cool. Like the design. Convenient strap. You could put things over the roller handle so you could not have to mess with the second bag. It was all... Well, they kept sending me the same online messages. <laughs> and I was like, this is so interesting. They're not segmenting me. They're not trying to determine why am I interested in this luggage? What is it about this luggage that kind of has me fascinated? So I think it depends on our ability to step back, really have substantive conversations with our market segments and understand the pain they're experiencing. That's all everybody wants. They want the pain to go away. And so it's not a matter of speaking to them about our price or our product or our features. It's about speaking to them in a way that we can both educate them, how to wear it, how to use it, how to eat it, why they need it. And secondly, to cultivate them along that journey. That's what's really important, but we can only do that if we have an intimate knowledge of that market and we've been out there outside our building outside our offices talking with that market and not explaining but listening what pain are they experiencing what roadblocks what friction are they having in that journey because that creates all the fodder for to your point the value messaging i think that's dead on i, I think the majority um don't necessarily Think of it in that way in advance, but talking with, let's say, an early adopter, seeing success, and then pretty soon yeah. it's like, hey, why isn't this working anymore? Yeah. Right. Like, why are these people rejecting this and saying that they have a different pain point? Or they actually, the thing that used to be attractive over here is actually unattractive over here. And eventually, just through talking to people, trial and error, they figured out. Whereas people in you, like you and I, you know, we've got frameworks for this type of thing and we're expecting this day to come. Um, but people will figure it out. If, as long as they talk with people, they'll figure it out eventually. It just may have some start and stops before they get there. 
Well, this morning, you know, we were talking about our messaging. We don't have one set of messaging. It depends on the audience. Are we talking to a commercial real estate audience? Are we talking to a developer and a financier? Are we talking to people who build community solar? Are we talking to uh, corporations? Um, they all have, uh, they have different pain that they need to relieve and our message has to be tailored to them. And, you know, we were talking about this this morning, you just inspired me to remember this, is that someone asked me on the call, well, do we have it right now? Because we'd gone through all the message by channel uh, research, how do we take it into account? Did we vet it? Oh, like so. And I said, the only thing we know is it's wrong. That it's all we know right now. We just know it's wrong. When we begin to metric which one of these messages is beginning to snag with the audience, that's when the game begins. That's when it gets fun. Because the audience will tell us when we got it right. And the audience will tell us when we got it wrong. And so, it, you know, part of that is, and I remember years and years ago in retail, we would throw messaging out, never test it. <laughs> and it's like, that was a long time ago. But now, the, you know, with the technology that we have today and the way we reach markets today, it's really different because we can test the validity of individual messages on individual channels to individual audiences and let the audience tell us uh, when we got it right. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like it takes the pressure off a little bit. Um, yeah. You, you don't want to put out sloppy work. And especially if you care about it, you want to put out good stuff and you want it to be close but you also need to care about the process and what your learning processes look like and how can you learn through something that hits a, a bunch of people and how can you learn just in conversation and did their body language change for in the positive way because you said it like that versus another way. I mean, and just constantly obsessing about that type of thing, paying attention to why did this person like and this one didn't, oh, it's because of these factors. It's, I think it's what's make it interesting, but also a little bit more forgiving, right? Like you don't have to nail it on v1 like you go to v2 and in fact you might be able to get to v2 pretty quickly if you pay attention to things you have to be careful of voodoo advertising too because i'll never forget working in mass market retail we had a sunday supplement that would be published every week 30 40 pages of content merchandise <clears throat> and creative director walked into my office one day and what they used to do is they used to take the tabloid the sunday supplement insert and they used to write for us the sales volume that came off every single ad on every single page and be men's, women's, kids, shoes, better leather goods, on and on it went. The creative director walked into my office and she threw it on my desk and she said, oh, wait for today. It's going to be so good. There was one tiny little box on a page and she had tilted the box like this, unlike any other ad in the entire uh, magazine. And she said, that merchandise blew out the door. Everyone's going to be down here today wanting their merchandise in a tilted box. And I swear to you, it happened. She and I laugh about it to this day. GMMs, DMMs, buyers, all down going, we need our merchandise in a tilted box. Voodoo advertising. The question was, what was the quality of the product? How deeply did they purchase it? What choices did they give to the customer? Was it an end cap in store? Was the store incented to sell it that week? There were all kinds of factors that would have influenced those sales numbers, right? But it's this laziness in stepping back and being able to de-layer it and go, let's pull it all apart. That's why you often say, you know, we think we got it right. 
we think we're there. This is the best product we can turn out right now. Now let's just watch carefully and let the market tell us. Because yeah. you're going to be okay. able to pivot quickly, right? You have to be able to pivot quickly. Yeah. I, th I think that might be a new skill uh, for for some marketers to learn. I know I, it's it's one I've had to, to learn is just we didn't used to have such good ways to listen to the audience in the past. And so we got really used to to speaking to them and feeling like we're right. And then now it's like, if you're not listening, uh, you're, you're really hamstringing yourself. And so it's all about listening in a, a careful way, but also a structured way and paying attention to what you're hearing and trying to iterate on it as, as best you can. I mean, uh, but you have to unlearn those old habits, right? They're all the clues from social media, right? Uh, because, uh, you know, we rely heavily on those channels uh, to reach our market. But, you know, we can learn from the obvious things. Was the content shared? Did they click on it? Did they like it, right? All those fundamental things. <clears throat> but we can also tell what messaging resonated most with the market. And we can tell what level of person inside the companies are influencers, are uh, economic buyers, are decision makers. You know, we, we can get, begin to gather that data and paint a clearer and clearer picture of the market segment so that we serve it better, right? Because it's back to the time and emotion thing. I don't want to waste their time. And I want them to have a positive emotional experience. And the one I want them to have is they get my business, they get me. That's the, that's the, the ultimate. Yeah. Brad, when are you having the most fun at work? Having the most fun at work when I'm teaching. I, um, I learned a long time ago, you know, I've been doing what I'm doing for a long time. And uh, I got lots of accolades in my career, right? Top 10 financial services CMO in the nation, blah, blah, blah. I don't care anymore. What I care about is I want to learn every day. That's thing number one. So I'm having fun when I'm learning, like all the things we've been talking about, right? I could have done all this stuff a million times for a million audience segments, but every time the data comes in, I learn something new. So it's learning and teaching my team how to think about it, how to break it down, how to approach it. Because a lot of those uh, things have remained fairly consistent over time, changed quite a lot. You and I were talking, laughing about, you know, back in the day, we, we bought television by GRPs. So you probably talked to someone today, they won't even know what that is. But there, uh, it's the whole idea. I'm getting the most satisfaction when there are young people who care, young, 20s, 30s, even early 40s. They really care about what they're doing. They really want to build their career. They're super conscious. They're trying to learn. And if we can just teach them how to look at the world, how to deal with stress. I found this morning that probably 15 minutes of my conversation was talking to my team. And what I logged in was they didn't need my technical help. They needed my help relieving their stress. And they were stressing because they cared. And they were stressing about things that some of which I could affect and some of which I couldn't. I could help here, here, that's kind of a tight deadline. Yeah, I know it's tough. How could we reprioritize? That's when I'm having the most fun. When I'm leaving people better at the end of the day than they walked into the day and they love what they're doing even more. And I even take that to the point where I've said to my teams and uh, 
probably some of them will end up watching this, but uh, I've said to my teams, if you're looking for another job, I'm all in. I'll be the re best reference that you ever got. Just come to me. Let me know. I'm first going to try to talk you out of that decision. That's the first thing. So just know that. However, if I can't, I'm going to be the best support system you have ever had in life for going on to what's next and right for you. And I've discovered that when you do that and you do it sincerely, you get this premium back, this loyalty premium, this desire to work even harder to meet your expectations as long as they're not unreasonable. And uh, so for me, that, that's the thrill. I think that's what keeps me in business. It's like, I have really, I'm proud to say, I've really coached a lot of people. One woman from uh, an intern at a bank, she's now chief marketing officer for a, a quite big bank in the United States. And she credits me with that. It wasn't me at all. It was her listening and being vocal about what she needed. And helping me to understand this whole idea about mentorship, you know, people often go, well, you know, I have to be selected to be mentored wrong. If you want to be mentored, you got to call it, <laughs> go find the person in the organization who can help you and call it because nine times out of 10, they're going to be flattered and they're going to say yes. And they're going to be happy to try to reach a hand back and pull you forward because someone probably did it for them too. So that just gives me an, an awful lot of satisfaction. And I'm, you know, very attuned to my team and how they're feeling um, um, so that I can help them in whatever way I can. Some days it's emotionally, some days it's stress, some days it's uh, structure, it just depends. Yeah.